Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. In 2005, Sean Askinosi left a successful career as a criminal defense lawyer to start a bean-to-bar chocolate factory, and he never looked back. This drastic change in Sean's life started when he asked the question in his life that many of us have asked before, is there more out there? Is there something else? It's for this reason that I'm so excited that Sean is sharing his powerful story on the podcast with me today. Today, Sean's company, Askinosi Chocolate, is a small batch, award-winning chocolate factory sourcing 100% of their cocoa beans directly from farmers across the globe and was recently named one of the 25 best small companies in America by Forbes. Oh my gosh, by Forbes. Sean's work has also been featured in the New York Times, Wall Street Journal, he's been on Bloomberg, MSNBC, and numerous other national and international media outlets. In this conversation, Sean shares a lot about his newest book, Meaningful Work, a quest to do great business, find your calling, and feed your soul, which is honestly a piece of literature that has changed the way that I personally see the world and holds a beautiful and candid account of a brilliant entrepreneur's journey towards self-actualization. I'm Brendan Harvey, and this is Sounds Good, the weekly podcast where we have conversations with inspiring people who are rejecting cynicism and using their lives to make an impact. Let's jump straight into this conversation. I am so excited to get to talk to you today. I I mean, as you now know, I love your chocolate, but more than that, I love your story and what has led to you uh, creating chocolate. And, and maybe we can start this conversation before you were in the world of chocolate, because before you were in the world of chocolate, you were a lawyer. How did you get into the world of practicing law? I was a criminal defense lawyer for about 20 years and I loved it. And it was what I always wanted to do. My dad was a lawyer before he died and I wanted to follow in his footsteps. And so there was really never a time that I can remember when I didn't want to go to law school and be a lawyer. So that's, I mean, I grew up at the courthouse following my dad around and, and, uh, it was, and especially criminal law. It was just always something that I wanted to do. And why specifically criminal law? The, that choice was even affirmed after law school when I went to work for a big firm in Dallas, thinking that the money could kind of lure me away from, (laughs) from my original, um, desire of criminal law. But I think one of the reasons that I loved criminal law was because, the stakes were high, and it seemed that the result mattered. That mm. is, we weren't fighting over money. It wasn't a breach of contract. And not that, uh, especially in cases of personal injury where someone is hurt, of course, the stakes are high. But um, I loved the the idea of storytelling, to put a story together that wasn't just full of bullet points in defense of a client, but a story of that person's life and a story of the case that made sense, uh, that was trustworthy. 
And um, it was an opportunity for me to express my creativity, which people might think, well, that's weird. Um, but really, it's storytelling. Uh, it's what you do. That's fascinating. I'd never thought of, of law as something that could incorporate storytelling in that way. That's really cool. Well, it was fun, you know, until it wasn't. <laughs> Tell me about that point. Like, was there something that made it not fun or you just got tired of it? How long did you practice? About, I practiced, I practiced criminal law almost 20 years, wow. but I would say the last four or so of it, I was on a path searching for another inspiration. And I think what happened was, well, when I noticed it was at the conclusion of a murder trial that I write about in the book. Yeah. And let's talk about that was, trial because it, it was a fascinating trial. The woman that I represented was um, this very small, tiny woman who was, she believed that her daughter was being sexually molested by her ex-husband. And so she spent the little girl's lifetime, seven, eight years, protecting her little girl from her ex-husband, who by all accounts really was um, abusing his daughter. And But she'd lost her last battle in the courts. And the next day she was going to have to give her daughter to her husband, her ex-husband, for the first unsupervised visit. And she believed that both of them dying would be better than the little girl having to go to her her father. And so this is terrible and, of course, tragic that someone would even think these thoughts. But she, so she gave them both sleeping pills. They went into the garage, turned the car on, left the door down. The little girl died and the mom almost died. She was in a coma. And when she woke up from her coma, she was charged with first degree murder. Very, very emotional case. And um, I pled the the insanity defense, which never works. Um, and it was just a lost cause, but I was doing my best. It was very hard fought in the courtroom. And the judge was mad at me during the whole trial. The jury was sequestered. It was very high profile. And at the, and at the end of the case, the judge, right before closing arguments, the judge said, okay, I want to see both lawyers in my chambers, the prosecutor and I. And he said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to let her plead to second degree murder and I'm going to put her on probation. Well, that never happens. People don't walk away from a murder charge on probation. That's so, wild. But, but I was so emotionally just invested in this case which is really not good. But I, so I, he said, go talk to your client. So I went out to talk to her in this little room outside the courtroom. And I explained to her what the judge said. And I said, you know, this is over, you know, and you can walk away from here. I said, but I can keep going. I can keep fighting and I can take this to the jury and we'll see what they say. I'm prepared for my closing argument. And she just, this is going to sound weird. I don't know of another way. She, she embraced me there in that little room. I started to cry and the roles reversed. She was my protector in that moment. And I knew and know now looking back on that moment, that was the moment when everything changed for me. I knew I had to leave. Because why is that? Why, why did you know at that moment that that's when you needed to leave? I think one thing is I didn't know at that moment, but then as I began to reflect back on that moment after, you know, maybe a week, month, year, years after, I look back to that moment. And I think a lot of your listeners can relate to that. Maybe sometimes in right in the moment, we don't know. We know something's mm. happening, but we don't know exactly what. And so, but we just know something happened. Something shifted. And, and I even now, I can't tell you exactly what it was that shifted. But after that, I knew that I began to have 
little kind of almost mini panic attacks in the courtroom over very small little insignificant cases like a traffic ticket case or something. And, and I just knew I could, I was beginning to feel it in my body physically that Mm. this was not the right place for me anymore. It was the right place for me for many years and then it wasn't. So I think one of the things that we know now is that our vocation in life, our calling in life can change. And uh, we just need to be prepared to um, have awareness of what's And for me. I wasn't aware, except it started happening in my body. Mm. I mean, I ended up going to the hospital and I thought I was having a heart attack, which I wasn't. But and so, you know, I was so disconnected between mind, body and spirit that it took a real wake up for me to start. You know, it began manifesting itself in my literally how I felt. Wow. And that's that's how I started to know. Let's talk about this idea of vocation because uh, your book largely centers around this. And I, I love this idea. How would you define the word? Vocation, I think, simply just means, means calling. But I want to make sure that listeners don't think that it has to be a calling from on high, a calling from out there, a calling necessarily from God. I think it's a calling within. Um, Thomas Merton agrees with me on that. And um, I, th- I, I believe that this drive, this pull um, um, to do these things that we do are from within us. And that's what I think vocation is. That's interesting. And so you had experienced this as your vocation for 15, 20 years. And all of a sudden your body was saying, okay, let's, let's cool it, man. Maybe this isn't it. Do you think that it almost seems to me like you were seeing the symptoms, um, you know, physically, but at its core, was it that you had done this long enough? Was it that you had put too much value in it? Was it, uh, that your, your mission had changed, you know, for why you were doing this? Like, do you think that there was anything else that had shifted, as a part of that experience? That is a, gosh, that is a good question. Um, I think all of the above, except, you know, it was interesting. My, um, that is such a fascinating question, the way you put that about the, did my mission change? I mean, I, I think all of those things that you said are true. In other words, um, I felt like I'd done it long enough. I felt like I had, I had fought the good fight. I advocated for my clients to the, very best of my ability. I worked really hard. It didn't feel like work then. I loved it. Even the minutia and the things that would seem boring, I enjoyed. And um, I just had that sense, right place, right time. And when that began to sort of disconnect from my psyche, then it was kind of like all hell broke loose. (laughs) And I did start to think, you know, well, um, gosh, I've never lost a criminal jury trial. I'm making a ton of money. I have national notoriety in my field as a criminal defense lawyer. I've been on court TV live for hours and hours and guests on TV shows. And then I just started to think, well, is there more? You know, I I felt good about the work that I'd done for the clients that I represented, but I just started to kind of think, is there, is there more out there? Is there something more for me or even not more, but is there something else? Hmm. Where else can I be? Where else can I, you know, find a place to fit in that is something drawing me, you know, giving me inspiration and passion. And that was the real 
challenge, you know, that was really, that's where, you know, depression and anxiety began to sort of seep into my life when I was searching for the next thing. I feel like something that happens for a lot of people who are experiencing, especially depression and anxiety, is that you have this cloud around you and you have a hard time experiencing high moments and, and even remembering high moments. And, you know, a minute ago I I was about to say like, what a cool privilege that you had gotten to experience, you know, vocation at such a beautiful way where you were excited about your work as a lawyer. And then when you were out of that, you, you would just be able to like find that feeling somewhere else, knowing that you'd experienced it before. But would you say that because you were in a little bit of a state of anxiety and depression, you were also having a hard time connecting with, with what that would even feel like to be doing something that you loved again? Yes, that's very insightful. And, you know, the, one of the effects of, I can only say Lexapro because that was my experience, um, is what you said. It sort of lops off the highs and elevates the lows. So it sort of just gives you this sort of baseline of of feeling and I didn't really like that and I think it in some ways did preclude me from connecting to that feeling that you just described of I know what this can feel like but it's like I lost it Mm. now I'm not going to blame it all on Lexapro because I blame it also just on my personality type which I'm sure many of your listeners can relate to which is I was a successful problem solver, a motivated, driven person. I was an entrepreneur as a lawyer. I mean, I had my own law practice. And I believed that I could solve this problem of finding the next thing. You know, I believed that enough research, enough reading, enough talking, enough doing would surely reveal my next thing. That's the way my life had worked. I made it happen. And that was not working. And so the the sort of harder I tried, the further away it became. That was really also something, just kind of that circle of of anxiety. And I think it just made it that much harder for me. Okay, so spoiler alert. At some point, you become a, a chocolate maker. <laughs> and so uh, <laughs> I, I'll just cut to the chase and say, what was kind of the first accidental step into the chocolate world because I can't imagine that you basically woke up one day and you're like, here's the game plan. Here's what I'm going to do. I would imagine you just had something little that happened and you're like, Oh, that was kind of cool. And then you just kept on making that thing bigger. What was the first moment? The way this happened uh, from law to chocolate and this kind of desperation of, it took about five years. And, and what happened as I mentioned earlier, as I mentioned earlier um, in our conversation, my dad died And he was, like I said, he was a lawyer. He was my hero. I was 14 when he died. He was young. um, And it was lung cancer. I was 12 when it was diagnosed. And this was, to that point, to this point, the greatest sorrow of my life. Mm. And, you know, there's a long story that I recount in the book about how the church just kind of made it worse because they said he would be healed. And for me not to talk about death with him because if so, it would be a sign of doubt and he wouldn't be healed. And so we didn't, and, and, uh, you know, he kept getting sicker and the cancer continued to spread. And I was with him when he died at home and, and he was trying a case in court the week before he died. And as cancer often is, it was just an up and down thing. And, and I, I remember he had a stroke, Uh, the cancer at that point was in his brain. And 
I really thought that he was going to live. I mean, I thought something was going to happen miraculously. And I begged God out loud when he, you know, my last words with him, you know, and I could tell he was dying. And I just begged God, you know, please don't let him die. Please let him live. Please just, you know, crying and in desperation. And he died. And I'd spent about 25 years essentially trying to accomplish everything I could in my path, win everything, be everything, you know, all of those things that I thought would make me happy and sort of satisfy this broken heart that I had. And so the the key to answer your question was I began to have a conversation with that grief in my life, and it ended up that I volunteered in the palliative care department of a big hospital here in Springfield. And palliative care is basically hospice in the hospital, people who are dying. And they would give me patients to visit on Fridays. Sometimes there'd be five, sometimes 20 patients, wow. maybe in oncology, cardiology, neurology. And I'd go into the people's rooms and they were, in, they were dying in some state of dying, often with no one visiting them. And I would just talk to them, just have conversations about stuff. And I would always end by saying, Hey, um, one of the things I do as a volunteer is pray for people. Would you like me to say a prayer for you? And 99% of people in, in palliative care will take a prayer. I found out. And, and, uh, They're like, worth and, a shot. And, yeah, exactly. So I, I said this, and this was the key. I said, what would you like me to pray for? And they would say, well, could you pray that I live two more weeks to my 65th wedding anniversary? Or could you pray that I die today because I'm in such pain, I'm ready to die? or pray my family's okay, or any of those things. And I used their exact words back to them. And I asked them, I said, could I touch your shoulder or your hand when I say this? And they would say yes. And in those moments, measured in seconds, I actually thought about someone besides me and my big problem of not being able to find my next passion. And what am I going to do for my career for just a little bit? I thought about somebody else, and then there were times when I would walk out of the hospital after my time to my car, and it was as if if my feet weren't on the ground. I was walking Mm. on air. And what is that? It's joy. That's what that is. And I quote, you know, poet, philosopher Khalil Gibran in the book who says, our greatest joy is our sorrow unmasked. And the deeper the sorrow, the greater the joy. So what I did to answer your question is I went to the place of my broken heart and said, is there a place I can volunteer? Are are there people who need me in just my, some small way that I can assist and be a visitor and someone who prays for somebody in a way that was unlike what happened to me as a teenager. And that's what happened. So there was this deep, deep, connection between my sorrow that then became joy in ways that I can't, I can't even put words to it. And so that experience, which lasted almost five years on and off on Fridays when I was in town, that created a space in me to think about my future, not while I was praying for these people or, or having visits with them, but it was just during that time in my life, I was so intent on finding the thing for me that I just, I closed everything down. And this, what I'm describing to you had a way of opening up. It was opening my heart up, my broken heart. 
And from that, chocolate um, sort of just came to me. And <laughs> I just, I, I'd been, I, I'd been, I, I started a hobby of grilling on my big green egg. And then I started baking and made thousands of cupcakes. And then I started making chocolate desserts. And then I, I, th- I thought one day, it was 13 years ago this month, I thought, hey, I think I'll make chocolate from scratch, having no idea where <laughs> it came from. I just thought it was like a, I didn't know. I thought it was like a chemical poured into a mold or something. But when I thought that, three months from that, I was in the Amazon wow. studying how farmers influence the flavor of cocoa by what they do in their harvest. That's it. That's incredible. I love that. I love that idea that you you started turning outward, which is no easy feat, especially when you know you're struggling. But you turned outward, and that didn't just give you your answer, but it it created a space for an answer to come over time. And uh, it's so cool that that was just kind of like a hobby or an interest, and then it turned into something that could continue to grow. And you had this curiosity. You showed up in the Amazon. You're you're kind of looking around. Tell me more though, like that's, you know, that's the craft and that's why the chocolate tastes so good. But tell me more about your heart for, you know, the company and how it would work, because I, I understand that that's a pretty key piece of what you're doing. The, the chocolate, one of the things we say at the factory is it's not about the chocolate. It's about the chocolate. <laughs> what, what I mean by that is it's about the chocolate. I mean, if we don't make award-winning chocolate that people love, like thankfully you enjoyed it at your office <laughs> and, and uh, I'll send you some more. And, and, but if you, but if you didn't love the flavor, then the story doesn't matter. And so we are just laser focused. We're only 16 people here total in the factory. And we are laser focused on the quality of this chocolate. I visit the farms every year. In July, when I go to Tanzania, it will be my 40th origin visit since I started the company. And so I love this travel. I love meeting with farmers every year. And so this focus on the chocolate, it has to be about that because we couldn't do the other things if we didn't just, if we weren't so unilaterally focused on this idea of quality and what, but part of that and what's tied up in that. And in fact, just really inseparable from that is the vocation that we have to work with farmers directly. And that comes from my grandparents were farmers in Southwest Missouri, just simple people, not highly educated. They worked hard. They were kind, gentle people. And I want to honor them in the way I treat farmers that grow cocoa beans. And so that's why we put a farmer on the front of our package. These are real people. And that is my vocation. I, I sense that I'm actually not just honoring my grandparents, but I almost feel that they're with me when I'm, when I'm with farmers around the world that are growing cocoa beans. And then the other thing that we do is it's our vocation to work with students And we have a program called Chocolate University that we started the day the factory opened. And we engage local kids uh, in our factory to, one, inspire them that business is a force for good. And secondly, that there's a world beyond Springfield, Missouri. So we have an elementary program, a middle school program, a middle school summer school program, and a high school program. And the high school program takes the most amount of my time because it's very competitive for these kids here in the area to apply to become part of they spend a week in the summer on the Drury University campus and learn about all of our business model and learn about Tanzania culture, language, history. They go home and pack, meet me at the airport. We take them to Tanzania. What? That's incredible. 
Well, it's really transformative for these students. And so all of this that I've just described in the last little bit, that's not about chocolate. <laughs> it's, about, it's about us having a relationship with farmers and neighborhood students year after year after year where hopefully we can, you know, express kindness and compassion to them, them to us. And that's what this is about. So it's not about chocolate. It's about these things, but it is about the chocolate. So what I'm saying is, is that who we are, how we behave is inseparable from the product that we make. It's inseparable. Mm, That's so good. That's, oh my gosh. And this is maybe a good time to tell you that (laughs) this is like almost embarrassing. It's great. Uh, As I was reading your book, I I broke down crying at one point and it, it wasn't, the point where you were sharing, you know, the story of that woman whose case you tried. And it wasn't the point where uh, you talked about losing your dad. It was the point where you were talking about the logistics and day-to-day life of your office and how you set up meetings and how you are intentional about your employees and how you, you build these practices into your business. Because it's it's so inspiring to see the way that business can be a a force for good, not only, you know, in Tanzania, but, you know, in Missouri, in the place that you're working. And, and it's, it's really inspiring and beautiful. And, and I, I love that so much. Well, thank you for saying that. And this is important to us. It's a practice of what we call in the book reverse scale. That is, I don't want to grow to a huge, huge company and nothing mm. wrong with that. It's someone else's calling. But in order for me to do the things that you just mentioned about, you know, how we are in this company, it's important for me to connect with humanity, the humanity that comes here to work every day. And I fear, and I think it's a well-founded fear that if I grow too fast or really to be a big company, I would, me personally, I would lose that sense of connection. And I don't want to do that because um, that humanity, that human connection, and in me, I love the Joseph Kimball quote that we're called to joyfully participate in the sorrows of the world. And Mm. if I, and I do, I believe that. And I believe that, that if we grow too big, then I would um, be delegating, managing, writing checks, I wouldn't have the time to make that practice. Um, And how am I going to understand the joys and pains and sorrows of the people that I'm working with if they want to discuss those things or even let me in on some of that at an appropriate level? I I won't if I don't have the, if, if I'm too busy doing other things. So that's, that's why I think we often we suffer from this, myth we're conditioned in this world um in our country especially that we have to grow we have to grow fast we have to grow big otherwise our ideas and our businesses have no value but i I just don't think that's true i really don't i think we create more sustainable change more sustainable good in the world on smaller scales that are deeply rooted where do you think that you were first inspired to have a business that doesn't scale huge, you know, that's focused on, you know, sustainability and and the impactful work that you can have on a small scale, because that's not something that 
I don't know. It's not something I've picked up intuitively. For me, it was it was people who came before me who who did that, and I've tried to learn from them. What was that for you? For me, I think it was the Catholic theologian Jean Vanier, who is the French Canadian that is now eighty seven, who founded the L'Arche movement in France in the mid sixties, and that is um, the L'Arche movement is this. He started this little community outside of Paris where people. Um, live in community with those who have intellectual disabilities. And this is just a small little community that he started. Now there are many of the communities around the world um, that are affiliated with L'Arche. But Jean Vanier really speaks a lot. His, I think his most popular book is called Becoming Human. And he gives us in his writing permission to understand that we are not the saviors of the world, you know, that we're all, you know, we're all, as he says, we're all enfolded in weakness, trying our best to just change the world one heart at a time. And I've been very inspired by his writings. And I, I like I like the fact that he's given me permission to be small. You know, it's okay. And it's, yes, it's counterintuitive or counter trend or um, counter to the world that we see before us now. But I believe well, and, and so anyway, to answer your question, he's he has really been, I think, a driving force of inspiration for me um, to understand this this idea of smallness and understanding that we just don't have to become a big franchise in order to create change. And I think also it's this recognition, and he's essentially parroting Gandhi um, when he says, I don't want to change the world. I can't change the world. I want to change me. Hmm. That's good. And that I've been very inspired by that. I that's my it's my vocation. It's a lifelong endeavor. I just yeah. I want to change me. I want to change my heart. I want to be more kind, more gentle, more patient. If I could just do that, that's what sustainability is, really. That's so convicting. That's really good. What happens when <laughs> what happens when Everybody listens to this podcast and they go, oh my gosh, I got to get me some of that chocolate. And you do start to grow and you do, <laughs> not say that that's actually the reality that, that that's going to make a huge dent. But, but what mm-hmm. happens when the work that you do, because it's so genuine and coming from a place that's so good, it inevitably grows. How do you maintain that, that same posture and even just the same logistical structure without, you know, scaling too big, without losing hold of this thing that you care about? This, this is something we've encountered and we have, we've intentionally turned away good business Mm. in the past. And, uh, I, I believe me, I mean, especially now in the summer when it's hard to ship chocolate and not as many people are buying it, bring them on, man. I've got a lot of (laughs) chocolate in my factory. We ship with polar packs and ice and it's awesome and it works great. But you know, the thing of it is I've done this long enough that I know I'm not perfect at this, but I, as a leader of the company and with those on the leadership team, we, we're, we are able to sort of see the big picture and we can see kind of the higher altitude and understand that if we begin to make significant capital investment, that we'll be forced to then meet that 
capital investment with in, increased supply in mm. order to pay for that investment. So it's a ratchet, you know, it's this ratchet up, ratchet up. And I'm aware of that. And so I'm very, very careful. And one of the most important things to me, even to the extent of turning away business, and I have done that, and that is one of the most important things is a peaceful workflow um, in our factory. And I, it's not perfect, and especially in the fourth quarter. I mean, we're going crazy <laughs> trying to get chocolate out for people. But I want folks to have an opportunity to have a peaceful day. Hmm. And that's really important that we do what we can to eliminate chaos. And that comes from my experience at the monastery. And I've been, you know, really influenced by um, monastic life over the years. And so it has spilled over into some of the decisions that I make in the chocolate factory. That's really interesting that you say that because my team, you know, we, we make this physical newspaper and the actual production of the paper is loud and noisy because it's, it's a giant printing press machine that makes this thing. But the way that you consume it is slow and, and meticulous and, and you get to just kind of sit in, in quiet and enjoy this good news in this good newspaper. And we just started fulfilling all of our newspapers by hand. We were outsourcing before and then we just, we wanted to bring it in-house so that we could just take better care of our customers and, and offer uh, a superior product and, and to save money so that we could pass it on so that we can make good news more accessible. And and so I've been actually spending time packing these newspapers and, and sending them out. And it, it's actually been really interesting because I made a, a choice to to be really slow and methodical about how I did it. Uh, and I, I ended my day yesterday because I, I, I fulfilled newspapers all day. I ended my day just feeling actually really great about the day. Like it, it felt just the rhythm. It, it felt so, it, it felt great. I don't know, something about it. And I, I love that you kind of just put words to this experience that I'd had. And I love that maybe as we, as we scale we'll kind of get to pass that uh, experience on to more people because it's not as much of a drag as I thought it was going to be. It was actually something that I enjoyed. Mm -hmm. I think, and I thank you for mentioning this because I think um, peaceful rhythm is an opportunity for us to be more contemplative people and to be, it gives us a chance to, should we choose to be mindful about where we are and mindful about our work and the quality of our work and, um, to be grateful for a job and the chance to work for a cool company like yours. And so I think these are all, these are important and, but they come sometimes, not every time, but they come with a trade-off. And the question then is what's it worth to you? And how do we, how do we, and we do, we have to practice maintaining this. Mm. It's a, it, because because culture says you need to do it a different way, you know? Yeah, that's interesting. I, I kind of want to dive deeper into that idea of rhythm uh, because you're somebody who travels a lot and I, I travel a lot too. And people always ask me, hey, how do, you, how do you maintain a sense of rhythm? How do you maintain even a sense of balance 
while you're traveling, you know, because travel inherently is, is unbalanced. You know, it's crazy. You never know what's going to happen. What does that look like for you as somebody who is seeking rhythm, but also, you know, is in, you know, a dozen countries every year? For me, it begins in the morning. I have a, a specific morning routine and that routine sort of sets the day. And I pretty much don't deviate from that, but I, I do it five days a week. Hmm. Sometimes I will do a sixth day. And then during the day, I have bells that a bell that goes off on my f- phone at specific set times in the day that is at the same time that the Trappist monks where I'm a family brother at Assumption Abbey are praying what's called the divine office, the daily office. I don't do the bell at three o'clock in the morning, um, (laughs) but I do the other bells. And so I feel a sense of community with them, even just for just a brief moment, knowing that they're praying these prayers. And then I have kind of a mantra that I say to myself just when the bell goes off just for a moment, just to kind of point me back. Um, And those are some things that I use to just kind of keep me grounded in my practice. And so I think it's important whether you journal or um, have a person that you talk to at time in the day, or if there's a certain ritual that you decide on your trip you're going to do this thing and that is going to be a symbol or a representation of some in other intention, an intention of peace or goodness or kindness or whatever. And those are just, I think, some simple things. I love that it's those little things that are in your day. It's not necessarily that you're maintaining your exact work schedule every day, no matter where you are. It's just saying, no, I'm going to be mindful of what I'm doing and these things kind of bring yeah. me back into those moments. The other thing that I stopped doing while traveling is posting to Facebook and Instagram. And mm. I stopped that in January and it's been a really cool experiment. It has, um, I think freed me up in ways to be more mindful of the present moment, which I want to, you know, I, that's part of why I'm traveling to meet farmers and everything. I want to be present. And I've found that that has really helped me. A large part of my work is social media. You know, that's that's how uh-huh. I, I, I make a lot of my income is, is uh-huh. doing various social media things. And so for me, when I travel, I found it to be really interesting uh, to put myself on a tape delay. So I'll post a photo mm. that says like, just got to Paris or, you know, just got to Rwanda. And uh, the reality is that's four days behind, you know. And so it, it gives oh, me those that. first few days on the ground to get my bearings and to be able to actually kind of curate the things I want to say, be thoughtful about it and to never feel like I have to be in the middle of a conversation and posting something, you know, I never have to be, um, you know, in the car on the way home from an amazing experience, you know, drafting a post, I get to enjoy it, experience it and then process it. And then a few days later, the things that I share are much more meaningful and real and ideally posted from like my hotel over breakfast, you know, not, uh, not while I'm, you know, at somewhere important to me. I love that. Hey, maybe I'll try that. There we go. I mean, I just want to see your trip. That's, I'm just trying to trick you into, into showing me your journey. Um, I think it's really interesting to me that you, 
you know, made this transition from a high profile, successful career uh, to something else that you are, it seems equally talented at and equally excited about. Do you ever think that you might have another vocation ahead of you or is this, is this it for life? I absolutely think that there could be the, the, and what I've learned is to be ready for it, but to balance that with the virtue of stability. And I've written about stability, not in the book, but on my blog. It's, I believe, a forgotten virtue, really. Um, the monks, in fact, are what inspired me to this. They have to take a vow of stability, um, which means they're not going to leave communities. They're going to stay put unless something really, really drastic happens. And I, so I want to, on the one hand, be open and ready for that possibility why? Because I don't want to hold so tightly to this that I could never let go. And one of the things that I said when this came to me, I believe it was an answer to prayer, but I, I said, you know, I want to know when it's time to let go so that I don't worship it. Hmm. I don't want to worship it. I don't want to for the thing to be the object of my um, love but on the other hand, I want to also not be distracted by the shiny object in my periphery of, oh, this looks cool. Hey, why don't I do this? Why don't I start this other side business? Or I could get somebody to be the managing partner. Why don't I just do that? I could give them a little money and we blah, blah, blah. And especially now, you know, we see so many opportunities available to us online of all of the different things that we can choose to do. And I think that we're in a world of um, the opposite of stability in that sense where we we have all of these so-called choices in front of us that we, you know, we leave jobs, we leave marriages and relationships and friendships, and they, they've become easy in a way for us to um, leave. And so I look for that kind of balance almost to be ready, but not ready, Yeah, you know? And yeah. so... That's a, again, it, this is one of those things that I believe is part of our practice, even our daily practice to say, you know, today is going to be this change for me. It's not going to be the way it was yesterday and never can be. And it's not going to be. And so what does that mean? You know, what will it bring in my life? And will I be aware and will I be open? Will I have ears to hear and eyes to see what's in front of me? That is this opportunity for me to express my vocation in kindness and love and and then also be remember to when we're bored when we are a little depressed when we're frustrated to remember to have the discipline to remember that we made a commitment to this thing and to this person that there's a commitment and we're we we need to find honor in that and virtue and so I, both of those things together, I think, are important considerations for our daily life. I think that's really beautiful. I think it's a really beautiful idea that our vocations, whether they're, you know, like a relationship vocation, like a calling to a relationship um, or our work or, you know, a practice, that that's part of the joy is that commitment to it and to to choose to 
to stay even when it's difficult long term, I almost feel like that's when the special stuff happens. You know, that's yes. you, you've got to you've got to make it through that difficult part before you actually see the joy behind it. And yes, it's interesting that you can basically you can have open hands to new opportunities, but you've got your eyes forward. It just you know staying the course. Yes, I'm not Catholic. I know it probably sounds like I am in this podcast, but I'm not I'm not Catholic, but they they do have this tradition called the Paschal Mystery and I love the Paschal Mystery because it essentially is the Passover, you know, and this it's the, it's this notion of from darkness to light, from death to resurrection and it's from the valley to the mountain and I think you're right. I think what you're saying is so true that we, how do we know what the mountaintop looks like if we were never in the valley? And, and so that's, you're so right. I mean, I, I believe that we can really have a deeper appreciation and gratitude for those deep moments of joy that are made possible from the bottom of the valley, or as I say, you know, from our sorrow and from our broken heart. That's where it comes from. Y'all, I loved this conversation. I personally learned so much from Sean's story and I'm so grateful for his vision of greatness, which seeks to value the smallest of things. I'm also really challenged by his pursuit of eliminating chaos and meeting our world's needs in small but truly meaningful and real ways. After this conversation, I may or may not have told one of my coworkers at Good 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 that uh, it's now a personal goal of mine to drive out to Springfield, Missouri and spend some time with Sean in person and just kind of take some life notes. <laughs> if you want to learn more about Sean's story and his meaningful work, follow at Askinosi on Instagram and Twitter and go to their website, check out their chocolate. Uh, it's delicious. And do yourself a favor and order Sean's book, Meaningful Work, wherever you buy books. It's a plan that I'm planning on definitely rereading again in the future. If you're new to Sounds Good, we would love for you to stick around. You'd also love my conversation with Jonathan Moya or my conversation with hip-hop artist Propaganda. Both of these incredible individuals have used their vocation to meet a deep need that they've seen in our world in really practical ways. You can find both of these episodes and more than 100 other episodes by searching for Sounds Good wherever you listen to podcasts. This podcast is created by me, Brandon Harvey, as a part of Good Good Good, a community that believes in the power of celebrating good news and becoming good news. Chad Michaels, namely, and the team at CM Studio Edit makes the show and Christy Karenbrock offers production support. You can get lots more hopeful stories on social media by following us everywhere at goodgoodgoodco. And as our team at Good 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 gears up for creating our first issue of year two of the Good Newspaper, we've made all of year one issues available for purchase online. And the stories and tools we provide are, are ultimately designed to leave you feeling less overwhelmed and more capable of being a part of the good in the world. So go and check out some past issues if you haven't gotten them already and see what else we do at Good 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 by visiting us at goodgoodgood.co. And on that note, that is a wrap for this week's episode. Make a point to remember Sean's words this week that we create more sustainable change and good 
on smaller scales that are deeply rooted. It's important not to disregard the small things. Sound good?